0: Like I said, you are in in a sermon series on the deeply moving and profoundly significant upper room discourse. This is the longest recorded conversation we have between Jesus and his disciples, where we have the uh, holy privilege of eavesdropping on the Savior's final words to his beloved followers. It, It truly, when you read the passage, it feels like you are on holy ground. There is a lot going on in the passage that I just read and um, I'm not going to be able to exhaust it all. Perhaps Andy can uh, revisit, with, revisit the passage with you again. But there is one repeated theme that I've chosen to focus on in detail together this morning and it has to do with love. Specifically, what exactly does it mean to love Jesus? My simple question for us This morning is the title of my sermon, Do You Love Jesus? How do you even answer that question? Uh, We live in a time, we live in an age governed by what uh, philosopher Charles Taylor calls the ethics of authenticity. The the defining mark of this ethic of authenticity is an overemphasis and an over-reliance upon an internal monologue with our emotions. An introspective quest for authentic feelings. And so when I ask the question, do you love Jesus? The first place we are tempted to turn for an answer are the feelings we feel, the emotions we experience. But this is a frustrating place for us to turn because feelings are notoriously fickle and elusive. If our emotions determine our love for Jesus, well, then our love for Jesus really becomes a precarious journey. But thankfully, this is not how Jesus defines love in our passage. His definition of love is refreshingly simple and tangible, though admittedly challenging. I want to concentrate on a statement that Jesus repeats four times throughout the passage I just read. We see it in verses 15, 21, 23, and 24. In each of these verses, Jesus essentially says the same thing in four slightly different ways. But there are three words that he uses in each of these verses that get to the heart of the message that he is trying to convey about love. And so what I want to do is simply build my uh, three points around each of those three words. Do you love Jesus? To answer that question, we're going to look at the significance of the word love, the significance of the word keep, and the significance of the word my. And that will make sense as I go through it. So let's start with the significance of the word love. Verse 15, if you love me. Verse 21, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me. Verse 24, whoever does not love me. Again, worded slightly different. But this, this is the one consistency. Jesus is interested in our love. And I want to remind us how unique that is, religiously speaking. We Christians take it for granted that we speak of our God with the language of love. Traditional religious concepts speak of God or gods with exclusively exalted, transcendent, reverent language. We praise God, we honor God, we worship God, we serve God, we submit to God, and so forth. And of course, all of these are true for the Christian. We praise Jesus, we honor Jesus, we serve and submit to Jesus. But that's not what Jesus singles out here. Jesus is pressing in on whether you love him. When Jesus was asked the greatest commandment, he spoke with the language of love. When the Apostle Paul sums up the ethics of Jesus, he says that the greatest of these is love. In our Old Testament reading, when people tend to think of the Old Testament as a more classic, exalted, transcendent, traditional, religious view of God, the Old Testament says, you shall love the Lord your God. And even when you read the Psalms, at times they can come across as love letters. To God. It is so clear in scripture that love is the highest aim and that is very unique to the Christian faith. We retain all the classic conceptions of God. Worship, adoration, submission, reverence, obedience, and so on. But we do them as those who love. And what this speaks to is that distinct con- Christian concept of God and humanity in relationship. In our passage, Jesus isn't after adherers to a religion; he is after people in a relationship. He wants to know about their love because love is the language of relationship. One of the things I love about your culture uh, is is the whole royal family. I know that's such an American tourist thing to to like, but 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 we admire that part the nobility and, and so forth of the royal family. Um, I'm not entirely sure if the crown is a controversial topic here, so I might be getting myself in trouble, but just if so, blame it on typical dumb American preacher and his cultural sensitivity. But Americans tend to do their politicians what, uh, the reason why I like the idea of a royal family is Americans uh, tend to turn their politicians into that to fill a cultural role and so the truth is a nation, uh, that, that doesn't have something like the crown to admire does that to our politicians and it gets us all in trouble. We venerate, uh, people like Donald instead of the crown and that gets us in trouble. And this reverence for the crown, I think is a good way to conceptualize stereotypical religious devotion. Last time he preached our church, he used an experience Um, that he had as an illustration of paying his respects to the queen after her death, Um, he walked into the sacred and reverent space and could not help getting carried away by the transcendence of the moment. He didn't plan to do this, but instinctively he found himself bowing at the sight of the exalted queen lying in state. And he naturally and appropriately connected that to our reverence, to a holy, exalted God. I completely agree. There's a very appropriate way to speak of the Christian God. But we must take it even further. We are not Andy Longwe in that scene. We are William and Kate, George and Charlotte. They approach that moment with the same transcendent reverence. They too bow as they should, but differently. Attending to their reverence was love. Not just a distant love that I'm sure many of you may have had for your queen, but relational love, indeed familial love. Christianity is a peculiar faith tradition that says we are not reverent worshipers of a transcendent God. We are reverent worshipers of a transcendent God whom we love. That's the language Jesus is using here. Not, do you revere him? Not, do you submit to him? Though Jesus is worthy, of course, of reverence and submission. But Jesus wants to know, do you love me? But we still haven't answered the question of what it means to love. Well, let's consider the next word that shows up in each of these verses. The significance of the word keep. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So what Jesus does here is he defines love as action. If you love him, then you will keep his commandments. You will obey him. It's easy to say, I love Jesus many do. In fact, still in America, 70% of people would say that. It's easy to say, who can know if it's true? And love seems so nebulous that how can it even be defined or discerned? Jesus has an easy answer for us, our obedience. Keep my commandments. People who love Jesus obey Jesus. It is not our obedience that secures our relationship with Jesus. That is by grace alone, through faith alone. But it is our obedience that authenticates our relationship with Jesus. Now this is very important for us to hear because it is my experience that we tend to look at one of two things to discern love for Jesus. And neither of them are what Jesus is singling out here. Instead of obedience, we tend to look at either the mind or the emotions to discern love. In our tradition, and I say ours because I come from the Presbyterian Church in America that has much in common uh, with the free church over here, our Reformed Presbyterian tradition, we can easily define love by the mind, by our cognition. Of course I love Jesus. Look how much I know about him. Do you know how many Bible studies I've been to about Jesus? Do you know how many books I've read about Jesus? Do you know how many sermons and podcasts I've listened to about Jesus? Do you know how precise my theology is about Jesus? How can someone know so much about Jesus and not love him? Well, that's easy. We could start with the devil, if you would like. The devil could deliver an excellent lecture series on Jesus. couldn't preach a sermon, but he could teach. But the devil knows nothing about love. Of Jesus. Friends, I'm, I'm speaking very candidly here on purpose. It has been my experience that the Reformed tradition lends itself to people who know a lot about Jesus but may not love Jesus because they know about him, but they're not obeying him. Conversely, on the other side, you have those who look toward their emotions, as I already said, to discern love for Jesus this tends to apply to maybe the younger among us, my millennial and Gen Z friends with your uh, endless, maddening, introspective game, constantly trying to discern whether you feel like you have a relationship with Jesus, whether you you feel like your love is truly authentic And when you have an emotional high, you feel so assured. And when your emotions run dry, you feel like a hypocrite. And so your relationship with Jesus becomes this constant pursuit for the next emotional fix. So that you can know for sure that you actually do love Jesus. And have a relationship with him. What a terribly fickle way to find love. Love defined by emotions is truly a treacherous journey. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't define it that way. He doesn't define love by what we know, nor by what we feel, but by what we do. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Don't overcomplicate it. Love is demonstrated by doing what Jesus tells us to do. After all, he's the one we love. i use an illustration I like to share to help us understand how we complicate this really simple concept. Our kids uh, have chores that they are expected to do um, in our home every night. The most dreaded of these are the dishes. They hate the dishes. Well, suppose I say, boys, do the dishes. Mom and I are going to go out uh, to the other room and catch up on our day. When I come back, I want the dishes cleaned. So Abby and I go away, have a nice, pleasant, peaceful chat about our day. never happens that way, but it's an illustration, so we'll go with it. I come back in, and the dishes... ...are not done. I say to the boys, why didn't you do the dishes? This would be the fallacy of modern Christianity. They say, well, we've given a lot of thought to your command to do the dishes. In fact, we've looked at it from every angle... ...to discover the deepest possible meaning of do the dishes. In fact, we invited friends over for a do the dishes discipleship group... ...where we've discussed how profound is your command to do the dishes... We have confessed to each other our failure to do the dishes. We have prayed about doing the dishes. Dad, we know everything there is to know about doing the dishes. We can tell you what do the dishes is in the Hebrew and Greek. I would rightly say, what are you talking about? Do the dishes. Well, Dad, we know you want us to do the dishes. But the good news, the gospel, if you will, Dad, The good news is that we are not accepted within this family because we do the dishes. So secure are we in your love and our status as your children that we know that even if we don't do the dishes, you're still going to love us. We didn't get into this family for doing the dishes. We can't be kicked out of this family for not doing the dishes. So we just want to say thank you, Father. (laughs) How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. Thank you for forgiving us. For our failure to do the dishes. Now you're only laughing because it's true. Here's the other option you could do the dishes. If you love me as your father, I don't need you to study it. I don't even necessarily need you to feel it. I need you to do it because I asked you to do it. Do you love Jesus? Instead of asking yourself what you know about him, Instead of asking yourself what what you feel about him, ask yourself whether this day you have done one thing that you didn't want to do, but you did it because he said to do it. Or whether you didn't do one thing that you really wanted to do, but you didn't do it because he told you you shouldn't do that. It is simply absurd to say I love Jesus and then not do what he tells me to do. So, what is Jesus telling you to do? That's actually an important question to ask and one that is easily misunderstood. And it leads us to our third and and final word here. The significance of the word my. Once again, look at those four verses. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my commandments. So, at times he uses my commandments. At times he uses my words. But what is consistent is the word my. We keep his commandments. We keep his words. And you might say, well, that's obvious. But it's not as obvious as you might suppose. Oftentimes, we invent commands... And then canonized them as if they were the very commands of Jesus, but they're not his, they're ours. Nothing made Jesus angrier than religious leaders who treated their traditions as his commands and then heaped burdens upon people to obey their traditions as if it is obedience to God, or condemned and shamed people for their failure to obey their traditions by presenting it as as disobedience to God. It could be so many things. I recently got in trouble by just pointing out the fact that America's divided political landscape, in that, in that context, we have turned our vote in an election to obeying the commands of God. A Christian must vote a certain way if they are to be obedient to Jesus. And nothing gets an American preacher in more trouble than simply suggesting that you are actually free to vote your conscience without sinning against God. That may seem strange to your context, but I'm sure your context has traditions and rules that you have canonized that I would find strange. All of us have a proclivity to treat our commands as the very commands of Jesus. But they're not his. And what got Jesus in trouble with the religious establishment of his day is he would break their commandments and traditions while perfectly obeying his father. So we need to be very careful. I'm guarding the sermon here. Because it could it could run you into deep places of either legalism or condemnation. We need to be very careful what we conceptualize as obedience. Jesus says, "If you will love if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments." That means you can't take away from his commands, and you can't add to his commands. Okay, well then, what are his commands? Well. The answer to that is is twofold. The first is simply Scripture itself. Jesus' commands are the infallible Word of God because Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. And so, yes, there are commands in Scripture that are as clear as can be. If you commit adultery, you are not keeping Jesus' commandments. So, of course, the Scriptures give us a level of clarity with obvious commands, but there is more here to it than that. You know what is uh, so unique about the commands of Jesus in the Gospels? How specific they are to each person's story, context, idols, struggles, and so forth. Jesus just has this way of uniquely pressing in on our obedience. He has a command for the Pharisee Nicodemus. That's different than the command to the adulterous woman at the well. That's different than the command to the unjust tax collector. That's different from the command to the prideful Peter. That's different from the command to the greedy yet rich young ruler. He has a way to uniquely speak to each of them with a, if you love me, you will obey this. And he always presses in on that person's idol. He says to the rich young ruler, Essentially, if you love me, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then follow me. He says that to nobody else in the Gospels, but that's the test of love for that wealthy, powerful man. And so, yes, there is scripture that outlines commands of Jesus for us all, but there are unique costs of love, crosses of love that he demands from each of us according to our own unique story and struggle. There are things in my life where he says, Robert, if you love me, you'll do this. Or more often, you need to stop doing this. To which you might ask, well, how do we know that? Jesus isn't here like he was in the Gospels to press in on our idols. He's not here with us to tell us what he wants us to do, except that he is. He is more present now than he was in the Gospels. Because he's not in front of you talking, he's inside of you talking. This passage, as you noticed, is in the context of Jesus introducing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He will actually say that having his spirit inside of you is better. He has to go away so that his spirit can come because it's better for you to have my spirit than to have my immediate presence. And that is still the case. I am so confident in the presence and work of the Holy Spirit within this room right now I am so confident in the ministry of the Holy Spirit within you, within those who love Jesus, that, listen, you know exactly what he's telling you to do. I don't know you. He does. And you know exactly what his spirit is telling you to do. That's how faithful the Spirit is. He's telling you. He's convicting you. He's unsettling you. He's hounding you. He probably has been doing it all week saying, if you love me, you're going to do this or stop doing this. And so you, lover of Jesus, you know exactly what He's asking of you. There is an idol. There is an addiction. There is a besetting sin. There is a hidden struggle. There is something right now for every single believer in this room where Jesus by his spirit working in and through the word of God is saying to you this morning, this is my command for you. And so if you love me, then friend, obey me. Maybe not. Maybe you don't love him. Maybe you never loved him maybe you've never wanted to do what jesus commands and you've always just done what you want well if you'd allow me just to humbly press in a little bit may i just point out the futility of that decision how is life with you in charge of your life how's that working out for you how's that going how is it going with you obeying you If you're like every other person who has ever tried that and has the honesty to admit it, you obeying you turns into a disaster. It does for me every time. Have you considered Jesus' commands are good? Have you considered that life is found in obedience not to your ones in desires, but in obedience to your God for whom you're made? Oh, that you would wake up and finally admit the bitterness of your own ways. Or maybe you have loved him, but you've grown weary in your love. Maybe you love him, but your love has grown cold and all that is left is a faintly smoldering flicker of love and you fear you just don't have it in you anymore to obey Jesus. Well, To those who have no love or those who need their love inflamed once again, I proclaim to you the one thing that evokes love for Jesus and it is Jesus' love for you. We love because He first loves us. Verse 31 says, But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. He just turned his own teachings on himself, hasn't he? I love the Father, so I'm going to do what the Father has told me to do. And what has the Father commanded? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The Father commanded the suffering of the Son because he loves sinners. And the Son... Inflamed with love for the Father, obeyed. Jesus perfectly loves the Father. And so Jesus does what the Father has asked him to do. The Son obediently bears the infinite costs of the cross. Yes, because he loves you, but more so because he loves the Father. And this is what the Father has asked because the Father loves you. Don't you love him for what he has done? The perfectly obedient love of Jesus has purchased your eternal salvation. Don't you love him? We're about to sing, love so amazing, so divine. And it is. It is amazing. and It is divine. But the hymn writer perfectly then says, demands my soul, my life. My all, O oh, sinner, do you not love Jesus? Well, if you do, then obey him. Let me pray. Jesus, inflame our love for you, with your love for us. Overwhelm us with your love that we might leave here with our hearts full of love for you, not just cognitively, not just emotionally, but obediently. Send us forth as those who love Jesus to obey the Jesus we love. Lord, as I said in the sermon, I am I am so confident that you have every person in this room here for a reason. And it is for your Holy Spirit to press in on an issue of obedience. To press in like those holy moments in the Gospels where Jesus says, count the cost, do this, follow me. And to follow me, this is what it looks like. You have that for everyone in this room. And so we, we trust you, Holy Spirit, to be faithful. Not just to convict, not just to reveal, but also to empower. Motivated by love for the Savior, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we go forth to keep your commandments. May it be so, Lord Jesus, for your name's sake we pray. Amen.